This is an ABC podcast. fertility is declining and this will inevitably stop population growth. In fact, the world's population will drop dramatically in the decades to come. I'm Paul Barclay. This is Big Ideas. Some of you may now think less population is a good thing. Well, yes, it would be if we could control it. But if it's out of control because we don't understand it, we could well get to levels of population which start to have an economic and a demographic impact. And the danger is that we risk falling into this infertility trap from which it may be very difficult to extricate ourselves. I know, I know, that this is going to be a hard story to sell because all around us, every second of every day, we see the evidence of overpopulation, whether this is global pandemics or global pollution or all the various manifestations of climate change. But it's going to decline, and it's going to decline at a rate which will be, as I say, if we don't engineer a soft landing, could be very damaging for economies and for the future of our species. Professor John Aitken explaining why we have fewer and fewer children. It's not just happening in Western countries, but around the world. The economy is one factor controlling overpopulation. An improved economy leads to better education for women, more women in work and a change in lifestyle. This in turn increases productivity and the circle goes on. There's also human biology. We're really bad at reproducing compared to other species, with only a 25% chance of conceiving at the best of times. And IVF doesn't help. It just allows infertility-linked genes to be passed on to the next generation. So a perfect storm of factors is contriving to drive fertility rates down at unprecedented rates. This particular talk in many ways has been half a century in the making. It actually began in uh, 1966 when uh, I decided to leave the small town in Devon where I was brought up and moved to the city of London. And this was really because this was the swinging 60s. London was in full swing. And all I really wanted to do was join a rock and roll band and set my soul free. So this was my intention in life. And uh, I went through this kind of uh, stage of, of my existence and emerged the other end with two very important realizations. Uh, one was that I probably never will make it as a professional musician. It's getting late, very late for me now, but I'm probably not going to make it. And uh, secondly, that somehow and rather inadvertently, I managed to pick up a degree in zoology and now had uh, an unnecessarily detailed knowledge of the evolution of the reptilian skull, which was uh, our professor's favourite topic. And armed with this knowledge, I somehow had to forge uh, my way through life. And I was uh, rescued from my meanderings by uh, Roger Valentine Short. And uh, Roger, this was uh, back in the day when we wrote letters to each other, and I wrote a letter to Roger. As a young student, I was nobody from nowhere, and I just said uh, that I'd really enjoyed the paper he'd written, but I think there was a mistake in his interpretation, and uh, I 
describe what this mistake was. And a week or so later, I got a reply, and I thought, oh no, this is going to be, you know, he's intensely angry that I should uh, assume uh, to say anything derogatory about his paper. But he said actually quite the opposite. He said, I really enjoyed your commentary. Why don't you come to Cambridge and we can have a chat? So uh, I literally drove overnight uh, from North Wales, where I was at the time, down to Cambridge, and we met, had a fantastic conversation. At the end of it, he said, well, why don't you just do a PhD with me in reproductive science? And he asked me to study the biochemical mechanisms that regulate very early stages of development. So I thought the project was absolutely fabulous. Couldn't imagine a better project. So it had taken uh, since the dawn of time until 1804, for us to grow a world population of one billion people. Uh, we paused very briefly for the Black Death, but after we'd learned how to unleash the energy bound up in fossil fuels and understood the importance of primary health care and reducing infant and childhood mortality, after that, there was no stopping us. And our population rapidly rose through 2 billion, 3 billion, 4 billion, 5 billion. We're on our way now to about 10 to 11 billion people on the surface of the planet. And this was a rate of growth that seemed to us uh, unsupportable. How could you possibly maintain such a large population? And uh, at the time, a Californian wrote a very important book. He sold over two million copies, so I've got some way to go before I get to, to uh, Paul Ehrlich's uh, milestones. But uh, he sold two million copies of this book, and it was called The Population Bomb. And in it, he essentially said that uh, the combination of overconsumption per capita plus this meteoric rate of population growth, those two things together, were going to bring civilization to the existential edge. And indeed, he thought we were all going to starve to death. He confidently predicted in his book that by 2020, the United Kingdom would be a small group of impoverished islands inhabited by 70 million very hungry people. And, well, he got some of that right. The number's not too bad, but he got their status quite wrong. And actually, if he'd looked at the data at the time he released the book, he would have known he was wrong. So the population had risen very rapidly in the early 60s, but then suddenly it stopped. And by the time he released his book in 1968, uh, we had stabilized and we're just beginning. A, it's an inexorable decline. So the rates of population growth were not just stabilizing now, they were going down. And the reason why they were going down is that uh, fertility rates were declining across the globe. And we should just define our terms to begin with. So what do I mean by fertility rate? Well, I mean the number of children that a woman will have in her reproductive life. That's how demographers measure fertility. And uh, there is a general consensus that the replacement rate, that is the number of children you have to have for the population to be absolutely stable, is the number that Jagadesh gave us, which is 2.1. You need one child to replace mother, one child to replace father, and 0.1 to compensate for a childhood and infant mortality. So, the population was declining in terms of fertility rates very rapidly. And the key question now is, well, what happens next? One projection was put out by the United Nations. I used to work for the United Nations, so I know them very well as an organization. They are a very political organization. They like to tell the donor nations what they want to hear. And what the donor nations wanted to hear in terms of fertility was everything is okay. 
Uh, what's going to happen to the world's population is it's suddenly going to plateau and will hover just above replacement levels and nothing will really change. So you can all go home, curl up in front of a log fire, have a nice cup of tea and a chocolate hobnob and uh, relax because there's really nothing to see. The trouble is that they're wrong. And as I shall try to demonstrate in this talk, the forces that are driving down human fertility are inexorable and unrelenting. And they're not going to stop when we get to replacement level, they're going to keep on driving the population downwards. So we get well below replacement levels. So before I go much further with this argument, I just want to describe to you, if you like, the keystone concept in demography that I'm going to be addressing. And this is a concept known as the demographic transition. When we started our existence on this planet some 200,000 years ago, life was nasty, brutish, and short. We had quite high birth rates, but they were exactly matched by the death rates. We died young, and the population remained very stable. And it was like that for most of our existence, for th hundreds of thousands of years. And then suddenly, uh, this was all changed by two Englishmen. So Arkwright and Hargreaves in England initiated the first industrial revolution. And that then moved into the second industrial revolution and technological revolution. And what you've seen over the passage of time is a wave of socioeconomic development sweeping across the world, culminating in the kind of highly industrialized societies that we now associate with the 21st century. That's what's happened to us. And something really fascinating happens when we go through this socio-economic transition. And that is that our population structure changes and changes quite dramatically. So when resources start to become available, one of the first things that happens is that death rates go down. This is particularly infant and childhood mortality. They go down, birth rates go up, and as a result, what you see is uh, population growth. And then this progressively stabilizes until you get to what's called stage five of the demographic transition. The population keeps on rising even though birth rates have fallen. And that's a phenomenon which is going to be very important for this lecture called population momentum. And essentially what it means is that all populations have a dividend which is paid to them in terms of the number of young girls that were born 20 years later coming into uh, their sexual lives and having children of their own. So there's always this sort of built-up momentum in societies where you're waiting for the young girls to mature and then have children of their own. It means that changes in population don't occur very dramatically. As a world population, birth rates have declined. The population is still slowly increasing and we're poised at this point in the demographic transition. And as I said, the key question and the question I want to address in this lecture is, well, you know, what happens next? These things won't remain static. Do we stabilize as the United Nations would like us to believe and everything is going to be okay? Or does the population now suddenly start to decline at, a, a, a very un, at an unstoppable rate, uh, maybe at a rate that only the lost souls of dinosaurs and dodos would really understand? So what's going to happen to us? Well, we already have a very clear picture, I think, of what's likely to happen in the future. I've just taken the uh, fertility rates for some of the tiger economies in Southeast Asia, Taiwan, South Korea, Singapore. I could put any number of nations up there. They all show the same pattern. 
and that is that there was a brief burst of fertility in the optimism that followed the Second World War, so in the early 1950s. And then that, around about uh, 1963 or so, uh, that suddenly changed, and fertility rates declined in all of these countries, and they declined precipitously, and they showed no respect for the demographic concept of replacement level. They just kept on going and now are well below replacement levels in all of these countries. And indeed, as Jagadesh said, uh, in two or three decades' time, we expect that something like 183 of 195 countries are going to be in this stage of development where they have fertility rates that are well below replacement. So the obvious question to ask is, well, what's causing this? What's happening to us? So maybe the, as a first option, we should think about Paul Ehrlich's uh, statement that, well, actually, what's happening is we're all starving to death. That's the reason why populations are declining. Thomas Malthus. Uh, Thomas Malthus was a, an English cleric. He was born in uh, 1766. He died in 1834 in the city of Bath, which in incidentally is the city where I was born. Not the same year, obviously, but the same location. <laughs> He noticed that uh, when populations increase, they do so uh, exponentially. But the resources that support those populations only increase arithmetically. They increase in a linear fashion. So when you get past the point of crisis, then uh, the food supply and the population growth are now jaws that are widening. And what happens to all populations is that in the end, they starve to death. They just, you have so many individuals in the population, the food resources can't support them, and you starve. And that's nature's way of regulating populations. And it occurs in Australia, for example, when we see mouse plagues, you see a sudden massive increase of mice because there's been you know, a sudden burst of food availability, and then they eat all the food, and then the population crashes. And that's very typical of animal populations, but is it typical of ours? Well, no. So I've already shown you data that uh, fertility rate is declining very rapidly. If you plot the decline in fertility rate against food production, what you see is uh, the crop production index across the world actually increases when the fertility rate is near replacement level. So in other words, as societies become more socioeconomically advanced, uh, not only does their fertility go down, but their capacity to produce food goes up. And the same is true of the livestock industry, exactly the same. When fertility rates were declining, actually our capacity for, to generate food was increasing. So no, uh, we didn't starve to death. And I'm very much reminded of E.O. Wilson's comments about communism. Great idea, wrong species. Okay, so what is it that's causing this decline in fertility rates? Well, it's very, very tightly coupled to economic prosperity. Whatever it is, economic prosperity is the driver. And here, again, I've just selected three random countries, Brazil, Taiwan, and South Korea, and just plotted their fertility rates against their GDP. And, you know, the important thing to note is it doesn't take much just in the case of uh, South Korea, for example, half a trillion dollars of GDP is enough for the population or the, their fertility rates to come crashing down. And the same only 0.25 million dollars in the case of Taiwan was enough to cause the fertility rates to come down. So yes, it just takes a small amount of, of money in the economy for fertility rates to come down. 
China, for example. So in Chinese economy, we know and has grown very rapidly in recent decades. As the Chinese economy has been growing, so we see fertility rates come down. And if we plot one against the other, you see this uh, typical L-shaped graph. And again, I point out that uh, the damage to fertility was done when GDP was only about $2 trillion. So right down here at the base of the economic growth spiral was where we saw this sudden loss of fertility. When I say China to you, you all think of the one-child policy. Well, that's probably why their fertility rates went down. Nope, nothing to do with the one-child policy. So the one-child policy was introduced in 1990. And by that time, all the damage had been done. And actually, the population in China responded with a slight increase in fertility when being told to limit their numbers. Uh, later, they introduced the two-child family policy in 2015. And uh, this last year, they introduced the three-child family policy. And all of it uh, meant nothing. Whatever it is that's driving down human fertility rates, it does not respond to political edicts. You cannot tell people you've got to reproduce less. Something else is doing it, and the major control over population dynamics is certainly the economy. China, unfortunately, has very little momentum. That's the one thing that the one-child policy did, was to ensure that that population has very little momentum. They don't have large numbers of young girls coming into reproductive age. And so you can um, be certain that this fall in fertility rate will translate into a very de rapid decrease in numbers. And indeed, just uh, this year, uh, the population of China started to go backwards paper in science about that and it's just the beginning of a long slippery slope um, their population will decline what about australia so australia a very interesting case so in australia we've also seen an amazing increase in the growth of the economy in recent decades uh, we also see if we plot it against fertility rates this characteristic decline in the case of Australia it goes well below replacement levels and has been since the 1970s. Peter Costello um, didn't make an impact so he introduced his uh, baby bonus in about 2000 and something 2002 roughly and we increased our numbers slightly, but then they took the bonus away in 2014 and we went back to our wicked ways and population started to decline once again. So uh, incentives work. Political edicts don't, but incentives definitely do in the short term. Uh, and then what happened, even though fertility rates went down, the population of, of Australia has increased. Indeed, uh, economic growth in this country has been in lockstep with uh, the growth of its population. Those two things are highly correlated with one another. We don't necessarily become more productive per capita, but what happens is there's just more of us, and uh, that helps to fuel the economy. So how can this be? How can our fertility rates be falling like a stone, and yet the population increases? So Australia, like many advanced economic uh, countries, has uh, pressed the immigration button. And so we have a very active program of welcoming immigrants into this country, and many of us here are beneficiaries of that policy. It um, reached its peak in about 2009 when we had uh, over 300,000 visas issued to people to come to Australia to, to live. 
The trouble with immigration is it's very subject to world forces. And uh, in the last two or three years, we've had the global pandemic of COVID. And this meant that immigration into our country for the last two years has been well below uh, previous levels. Indeed, it's the lowest level it's been since the First World War. In our case, uh, immigration is, uh, I liken it a bit to natural gas. It's not the solution to the problem, but it uh, helps us paper over the cracks where we sort out what the fundamental problems actually are. And uh, immigration has helped us do that, but it's not a very reliable way of controlling your population. And uh, I've already explained how uh, in China the population is falling, so it's unlikely we're going to welcome too many Chinese immigrants into our country. They're going to have a population crisis of their own. If I was a vice chancellor looking for new students to come to my university, I don't think I'd choose China. But I might choose India. Uh, in India, same thing has happened. Uh, China, India has seen enormous socioeconomic growth. As a consequence of that growth, we have seen a decline in the rates of fertility. So now they are actually at replacement levels. This year they actually hit replacement levels. But the trajectory is downward, so they will go below replacement. The big difference between India and China is India has enormous population momentum. If you look at uh, the population pyramid in India, and currently uh, in India, there are 173 million females between 0 and 14 years of age. So they are going to fuel the growth of the population. Even though birth rates have declined, they're going to fuel, fuel the growth of the population over the next two or three decades, right? But sooner or later, that momentum will be used up. And when it's used up, then the population will start to fall. So it's a short-term measure, it's going to be okay. But long-term, India is going to face the same, uh, exactly the same crisis as the rest of us. And so the, you know, the last country on the, or group of countries on the immigration map would be Africa. What's happening in Africa? Well, in Africa, because they're at such an early stage of socioeconomic development, uh, fertility rates are still very high. So these are the countries of sub-Saharan Africa. They're still very high. On average, um, in these sub-Saharan countries, women are having four to five children. But you can see the trend. So this is just going to keep on going downwards now. They're just a bit behind the rest of us in terms of the place where they are on the population curve. But they're going to get there. So I would say, longer term, exactly the same thing will happen to Africa as well. All these countries with very low fertility rates, what is it that's driving it? We know that uh, economic prosperity is a key initiator of this, but what are the actual mechanisms? And in essence, there are three major groups of mechanisms. Um, so the first group are really socio-economic or socio-educational factors. And they are extremely powerful, and they act in a very short-term way. And then I'll go on to describe uh, environmental lifestyle factors, which have a more of a kind of intermediate impact in terms of their time of action. And then long-term issues are evolutionary issues, which I'll also go into. But let's start with socioeconomic factors. So I've already explained to you, if we look globally, the world's GDP went up. Infant mortality came down, childhood mortality came down, and fertility rates came down. It's just rehearsing what we've already discussed. 
When fertility rates came down, women suddenly gained something which was incredibly precious, the most precious of all things. They gained time. If you're only having to look after two children, it's very different from having to look after ten. And what did they do with their time? Well, they invested it in education. And all over the world, we're seeing a global sweep of the increase in uh, female education. It's been a slow and grinding road. I know we haven't gone fast enough. But now we're getting very close to 50% of the children in secondary school education being female, which is where, obviously, we should be. As the educational levels increased, uh, so fertility rates came down. They are very tightly correlated with one another. Tertiary education, you only need 10% of your population in tertiary education and fertility rates fall like a stone. So there is this very dynamic relationship between female education and fertility rate. And what I think we have is a kind of virtuous cycle. So it begins with uh, increased prosperity. When we have increased prosperity, all societies go through the demographic transition. As we go through the demographic transition, it means that we have lower fertility rates, smaller family sizes. When we have smaller family sizes, it creates an opportunity for women to become educated. Women then enter the workforce. We have more women in work. And we know that the more women in work that we have, the better the economy is. And so we have this kind of very interesting, uh, I think, dynamic between the, the number of women in work, which is increasing very gradually and very impressively. But as we get more and more women in work, the knock-on effect is that fertility rates will go down. So somehow we have to uh, make sure that that doesn't result in too great a loss of fertility. And the way that's being solved in many advanced industrialized countries is with the kind of uh, Scandinavian-style parental leave schemes that encourage young people to have children earlier. And uh, so it's not such an economic drain on them to have children. But that's the cycle. And that's the balancing act that we now face between female education, the entry of women into work, and fertility rates. Though all those things have to be balanced. And the one thing that gets lost as this great wheel keeps on turning, the one thing that gets lost is our biology. We are a very strange species. We are the only species that I know of that stops reproducing in midlife. No other species does that. Your feral wallaby or your laboratory rat will keep reproducing until the day it dies. Um, but we're not like that. We, we invest a lot of time and effort in postnatal care, and possibly because of that, we stop reproducing in midlife. I'll just show you what the reproductive life history of a hunter-gatherer in the Kalahari looks like. So this is a woman or women who are, if you like, reproducing as nature intended. And essentially, the, these are the kung hunter-gatherers of the Kalahari. They have quite a late menarche, because they're on a low plane of nutrition. Pretty much as soon as they hit Menachee, they get married. They will have their first child when they're 19 years old. And then essentially life is an alternating sequence of pregnancy and lactation amenorrhea. Well, lactation amenorrhea means that when you're suckling the baby at breast, a message goes to the brain, preventing your brain from allowing any more ovulations to occur. So as long as women are suckling their babies, they can't conceive again. And this is nature's way of spacing successive births, lactational amenorrhea. 
And so uh, at the end of the day, on average, a woman in the Kalahari will have five children and she will stop reproducing when she's 35 years old, roughly speaking. Contrast that with a woman in Newcastle. So we will have an early menarche because we're on a high plane of nutrition and then pretty much immediately afterwards uh, we will have a very, initiate a very, very long period of cultural infertility maintained by contraception. And we won't even think about having children until, on average, women have reached 30 years of age when they have their first child. And there's just time to squeeze in 1.6 children before the portcullis of age-dependent infertility comes down. So we're kind of living life on the edge. Uh, we're living reproductive life just where it should be stopping. So uh, when women are about, they're, they're most fertile when they're about 19 years old, which is exactly when the hunter-gatherer woman is having her first child. It's then pretty stable until the age of 35, which is when the hunter-gatherer woman has her last child, but where we start to initiate having our families. And then fertility is lost very rapidly until by the age of 41, 42, it's essentially gone. So we are trying to squeeze our reproductive life into these last few years. And it's not for nothing uh, that the average age of women in IVF centers is 37. They are in this window when natural fertility is declining very rapidly. And that brings me very nicely to uh, IVF, which is a kind of technology that I grew up with. I, Bob K. Edwards got the Nobel Prize for this in 2010. He was uh, one of our group in Cambridge, worked with Roger Short and I, and uh, we were very much involved in the development of this technology. And in a way, what Bob wanted to do was a very mechanical thing. In post-war Britain, the major cause of uh, infertility was blocked fallopian tubes. So in post-war Britain, uh, hygiene standards were not that great. Uh, women got pelvic inflammatory disease, and when that happens, the, the fallopian tubes become blocked. And he thought, well, a very simple answer to that question is just take the egg out of the ovary, fertilize it in vitro with some sperm from the male partner, just bypass the fallopian tube, and then pop the embryo back into the uterus. And that's why the technology was initially developed. And a very successful technology it is, and it's brought joy to millions and millions of people. But there is a problem with this particular technology. I give public lectures on this uh, all over the place, and I'm always surprised by how little people understand about the limits of assisted conception. Because if you look at pregnancy rates from IVF cycles with fresh oocytes, they show exactly the same pattern as natural fertility does. So you get your maximum pregnancy rates when you're at the age of 19, 20, and then uh, roughly at the age of 35, live birth rates following IVF decline in exactly the same way as they do with natural conceptions. And so by the age of 41, 42, um, fertility is not possible even with IVF. So IVF cannot help you, and uh, of course it can't help you, because all IVF ever does 
is juxtaposition the sperm and the eggs. That's why Bob Edwards developed it. It was just that in women with blocked fallopian tubes, the spermatozoa could not find the eggs. So, uh, fine, well, we'll just put them together in a test tube and everything will be good. But uh, with age-dependent infertility, it's not about the spermatozoon finding the egg. The sperm can find the egg quite happily. It's just that with age, the egg has lost the capacity to develop into a new individual. It's that loss of developmental potential which is responsible for this infertility, and you cannot rescue it with IVF. And if you look at uh, data, this is just Australian data, but it's re replicated across the world. There are, in any given year, uh, 20,000 women in Australia seeking uh, treatment in IVF centres. And if you're over the age of 40, your per cycle success rate is about 5%. And by the age of 45, it's vanishingly low, more or less gone. So 95% of these women will not solve their problem. And we shouldn't ask IVF to do this. It can't do this. What we really have to do is to stop using technology to kind of change our biology to suit our social needs. What we actually have to do is to model society around our biology. We just have to wake up to the fact that we are a species that stops reproducing in midlife, and we need to put in place social structures like the ones I've just discussed, the parental leave scheme that encourage couples to have fertility earlier. You cannot solve this problem with technology. You cannot make biology bend to your whims. The biology is fixed. You have to alter society around your core biology. Okay, I've spent a long time talking about uh, female uh, infertility, and now I want to switch attention to the male and start to talk about the way in which uh, the environment and lifestyle impact on fertility. Uh, my old professor in Cambridge used to say that uh, if men were bulls, we'd all be taken into the backyard and shot. It's funny how 50% of the audience always laugh at that point. <laughs> it's actually hard to find a normal cell there. Uh, semen quality in our species is notoriously bad. Uh, fecundity in our species is notoriously poor. So if you're a, a laboratory rat or a, a, a feral wallaby, fecundity, that is the chance that you will have a baby if you have intercourse at just the right time of the cycle, is about 100%. You get pregnant all the time. In our species, it's 25%. So you only stand a one in four chance of conceiving a child, even if everything is normal. Part of that is due to this poor semen quality. Not only is human semen quality poor, but uh, there's a lot of data now suggesting that it's getting poorer with the passage of time. This particular ship was launched in... Uh, 1992 by a Danish group led by Carlson. He published a paper in the British Medical Journal. And what he had done is trawled through the literature, recording sperm counts in papers that reported on semen profiles and published the, semen, the sperm count against time. And what he claimed to find was as the passage of time, sperm counts were coming down. Well, this was a hugely controversial claim. And everybody, epidemiologists, statisticians, everybody had a go at this, and they reanalyzed the data over and over again. 
We are now 20 years downstream or more, and uh, now I think we understand that this is a real trend. And it's not just uh, the Western male population, it's actually all over the world. And here are two studies, quite recent studies, based on young, large numbers, tens of thousands of people involved in these, these studies. And they show essentially that in both the Eastern, the Chinese population, and the Westernized population, sperm counts have essentially halved in the last half century. So 50 years ago, the average sperm count was 100 million per mil, and now it's 50 million per mil. And the regression lines are linear. There's nothing to stop this decline in sperm count. A very good friend of mine, a world-class epidemiologist, has just written her own book uh, called Countdown. She's called Shana Swan. And she makes this point in her book. Uh, essentially, she's saying that the decline in sperm counts is unrelenting. And it's not stopping anytime soon. And if it keeps on going down, we're going to get to the point where there are so few spermatozoa in the human ejaculate that fertility will be compromised. You can't avoid that. So uh, we look in Parisian data. The Parisians have been very good. They had a very interesting solution to infertility, a very French solution to infertility, where if a woman came to a clinic and said, I was infertile because my husband's uh, not capable of, of um, fertilizing the egg, they would say, well, is there another male member of your family uh, who's you know, got good sperm? Because we can do artificial insemination. And, and the, through these means, they collected historically a lot of data on semen quality. Anyway, uh, long story short, in Paris, uh, sperm counts are declining by 2.1% per annum. And it's a linear decline. So by my calculation, the French nation stops reproducing in 2030. Not long to go. New Zealand data. And it shows a very similar kind of decline. Again, it's unrelating, it's linear. And uh, I think the New Zealand nation stops reproducing in 2026. So at this point, there may be some rugby fans who are rubbing their hands in glee, no more French rugby teams or New Zealand rugby teams to compete against. But there's a serious problem here. Something, and it's something associated with 21st century living, something is suppressing sperm counts. And, and we don't know what it is, and because we don't know what it is, we can't stop it from happening. And uh, what I'm going to do in this talk is give you my hypothesis as to what is happening here. So in parallel with the decline in sperm counts, uh, we are also seeing a secular trend in testosterone levels. So quite a lot of data now, and I've just shown you here American data and data from Israel, uh, showing that in 1987-89, uh, these are uh, testosterone levels over lifespan, not the entire lifespan, but most of the reproductive lifespan. And, and they come down with age, so there's always that kind of confounding variable that uh, the older the man, the lower the testosterone. Nevertheless, if you account for all of that, testosterone levels were much higher in 1987-99 than they were in 95-97, much higher in 2002 than 2004. So, all over the world, uh, there is data that in concert with the decline in sperm counts, testosterone levels are also declining. And that makes sense because we know that one of the major roles of testosterone is to drive spermatogenesis. You've got less testosterone. It won't mean you're producing particularly bad spermatozoa. It just means you're producing less. And this would account for the linear decline in sperm numbers. So what's driving the decline in testosterone levels? Well, here's a hypothesis for you. I, it's just a hypothesis, but it's based on a bit of data. And I think this, this is a, an estrogen problem. 
So all over the world, in modern industrialized societies, we have an obesity problem. Men are putting on weight. We're all putting on weight, men and women, but men are putting on weight. And when you become obese or even overweight, the adipocytes in your body start to make estrogen. So obese men, overweight men are making more estrogen. Again, in westernized societies, uh, we are reproducing at later and later ages. And as I already told you, as we get older, estrogen levels go up. We eat all kinds of foods nowadays in modern westernized diets that are heavily contaminated with estrogens. Probably the worst are dairy products and meat. They still give uh, animals steroids in order to promote muscle growth. And we end up ingesting all of this stuff. And several fruits and vegetables are full of phytoestrogens as well. And then probably the biggest culprit of all is the plastics industry. So there are a number of reagents that are used in the plastics industry. They have names like bisphenol A and phthalate esters. And uh, they have intrinsic estrogenic activity. And they are thought to contribute to uh, lowering testosterone levels in men. Okay, so that's the sort of basic hypothesis we have. Environmental estrogens and metabolic estrogens driving down testosterone, driving down sperm counts. But if that's uh, all I had to show you, you, I don't think you'd be very impressed. Uh, but I have something else to support the estrogen hypothesis. A journalist asked me when I was preparing this talk, uh, did I come across any data in preparing it that absolutely scared me to death, that I thought was uh, going to be a game-changing observation? And yes, I did. And this is it. So in the progress of writing the book, I went to public databases, these are publicly available databases, and I just plotted the incidence of testicular cancer against fertility rates in all the countries I could find data for. And what it shows you is as you become more socioeconomically developed and your fertility rates decline towards the replacement level, decline towards two, testicular cancer rates go up vertically. There's an exponential increase in testicular cancer rates. And, uh, and this kind of meets with certainly my observations that when I was growing up, nobody knew anybody who had testicular cancer, and now we all know somebody who's had testicular cancer. Even if it's only Lance Armstrong, we know somebody who's had uh, testicular cancer. And indeed, this is not just a global problem. This is a global problem for our local community. I got the New South Wales cancer registry data out and looked in New South Wales. And actually, testicular cancer rates going up in New South Wales faster than anywhere else on Earth. Uh, ovarian cancer rates, steady as a rock. And actually, cervical cancer rates coming down because we now have very good ways of surveying uh, women for the early signs of cervical cancer. So testicular cancer rates are going up all over the world. It's not the only cancer, that's reproductive cancer, that's going up. There are others. Uh, in women, um, we see an increase in uterine cancers, and we see, of course, across the globe, an increase in breast cancers. And if you ask me, you know, what do all these cancers have in common? Testicular cancer, breast cancer, uterine cancers, the thing they all share in common is estrogen. So I think you can come up with a reasonable hypothesis that a rise in the estrogenic load in our environment due to environmental pollution and also endogenous production is leading to all these things, an increase in the kind of cancers that we associate with 21st century living, testicular, uterine and breast cancer, and also the reduced sperm counts that are ultimately going to affect our fertility. 
So we really need to get a handle on this. Uh, currently, I know no nation on Earth that is monitoring the levels of estrogen in its environment and doing anything at all to control it. But this is the kind of thing that's happening. And then finally, I just want to talk about something which is, as a biologist, I'm interested in the evolutionary consequences of all this. Sometimes we think of our humankind as sort of reaching the top of some evolutionary Darwinian tree uh, where we can look down with a certain amount of arrogance at all the other uh, products of creation. Uh, but it's not like that. Uh, we are continuing to evolve. And what I'm showing you now will influence the way in which we evolve. And I just want to go through two important things, uh, consequences, I think, in terms of our evolution. And one is an inadvertent consequence of the demographic transition. I've always already told you that at the early stages of demographic transition, when life is nasty, brutish, and short, you have very large families, and you have large families because infant and childhood mortality rates are very high. In other words, in Victorian London, the average family size was 11. The average family size was 11. So why would a Victorian woman living in London need 11 children? Well, because most of them were going to die before they got to maturity, found a partner, and managed to pass their genes on into the next generation. So you think about it, under those conditions, which have been the conditions that have prevailed for almost 200,000 years, we're always selecting for high fertility genes. You have to be capable of having six, seven, eight children in order for one or two to survive and pass your genes on into the next generation. But then you fast forward to a place like Australia where the average family size is 1.7, actually 1.6 now, and um, you have 1.6 children, two children, and we can pretty much guarantee that they will both survive and be capable of reproduction and passing your genes on to the next generation. So you've taken away all the selection pressure on fertility. And we know, I do a lot of work these days with racehorses, and we know if you stop selecting for something, you lose it. So we select racehorses on the basis of, of athletic prowess. And they win races. Yes, we did. But while we were selecting for that, the same animals lost their fertility. And fecundity in a racehorse is only about 60%, which is very damaging for the industry because you only get paid your multi-million dollar stud fee if the mare is in foal. So uh, it's an issue for the industry. And then comes IVF. And we already discussed IVF has brought uh, lots of joy to millions of people. It is a wonderful technology. It's hard to know how much human infertility is genetic, but I'll just take one paper, uh, which was published uh, quite recently, which suggested that roughly 40-something percent of all infertility is genetically based. I don't think that's a hard number, but let's just, for the sake of argument, say it's 40 percent. What's happening with IVF is the uptake of this technology is increasing exponentially all over the world. In some countries now, um, like Denmark, 10% of the population, 10% of the population produced by IVF, even in Australia now 6.7% of the population is being generated by IVF. When you start to use this technology at scale, its impact on our population changes. So when it was a cottage industry, which is how it started out, uh, the small number of children produced by IVF made no difference to the population at large. But now, if 10% and the graph I point out is exponentially upwards, so next year it will be 12%, then 15%, then 20%, if this graph keeps on rising, more and more of the population are produced by IVF. 
And when, ha when that happens, if you think about that, it means that what IVF is doing is ensuring in at least 40% of the population that the poor fertility genes that resulted in your infertility are now being retained within the population. So as sure as night follows day, we are going to see a continuing decline in human fertility. It's inevitable the more we use this technology and the more we use ART in one generation, the more we're going to need it in the next. And there are enormous implications here for national uh, health services and providers of IVF therapies. This is very expensive therapy to provide. And if 10, 20% of your population need this, and you can't have a, th a therapy which only the rich can use, it's got to be available for everybody, reproduction is an inalienable right, then uh, we are in deep trouble. So look, this has been a bit of a whistle-stop tour through a lot of data, and uh, I'll just make some the big picture conclusion. So a range of social, economic, chemical, biological factors are serving to drive down human fertility rates at unprecedented levels. The population is going to decline, that's inevitable, but I think it's going to decline much faster than we anticipate. This is actually, I just did a, an interview for the project immediately before coming on here, and they said, well, this is a good thing, right? I mean, we don't need lots of people on the planet. A reduction in the numbers of humans on the planet would be a good thing. Well, yes, it would be if we could control it. But if it's out of control because we don't understand it, we could well get to levels of population which start to have an economic and a demographic impact. And the danger is that we risk falling into this infertility trap from which it may be very difficult to extricate ourselves. I know, I know, that this is going to be a hard story to sell because uh, all around us, every second of every day, we see the evidence of overpopulation, whether this is global pandemics or global pollution or all the various manifestations of climate change. We're surrounded by information that tells us, no, no, the population is already too large. We don't need any more people, I don't think. But it's going to decline, and it's going to decline at a rate which will be, uh, as I say, if we don't engineer a soft landing, could be very damaging for economies and for the future of our species. So I've talked a lot about the causes of the population fertility decline. Uh, what are the solutions? That's what people want to know. So how are we going to solve this problem? Well, I think we have to engineer social change. We have to engineer ways to support young people to have children much earlier in life than they're currently doing. We need to be very active in monitoring reproductive toxicants in the environment. These things are affecting our future, and it's about time we woke up to their existence and started to monetize them. We need to gain a deeper understanding of the causes of infertility. We can't just keep reaching to IVF to solve every infertility problem. We need to understand much more about what are the causes of that infertility and maybe come up with solutions that are not necessarily IVF orientated. We need to completely revise sex education. Sex education is still, I think, heavily focused on preventing young girls, teenage girls, from becoming pregnant. But there's another aspect of sex education which is very important, which is to educate people that fertility is not a tap you turn on and off. It's just a, a rather fragile flower that briefly blooms and is then forever lost. So we just need to be aware that our fertility is actually quite fragile. And then we just need to increase social political awareness of the change that is about to come. Thank you all for listening. Thank you.
Professor John Aitken there presenting the 2021 Clark Memorial Lecture. Thanks to the University of Newcastle for that recording. I'm Paul Barclay. Thanks for listening. Bye for now. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.